feel very exposed here without something to lean on. So, uh, is that right? Yeah. That oh, I like that funk. Is it a funk? That, that, I don't know uh, music styles very well, but that was great. I like that a lot. I have to say, you're a very quiet bunch here, in the nicest possible way. In Leeds, you read that three times as loud. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you all have to wear earplugs in Leeds. Great to see you. Even those on the back, I won't take offence. It's okay. Uh, it's really great to be here. I obviously have met some of you in the evening. It's great to see faces that we know. And it's really good to see faces that we don't know and how kind you are. Thank you for smiling at me. I really appreciate that. We were saying at North, can I just say, I enjoyed Borderlands as much as North. And I loved North, but I loved, Kay and I loved being with you at Borderlands. It was brilliant. But one of the difficulties at Borderlands is when you're on the main stage, you have so many spotlights in your face, you, you can't see beyond the front row. It's like just peering into darkness. And I love to see people's faces, so thank you for smiling at me. I'll try and make eye contact with you, because I love that. Not to put you on the spot, but just because we really want to be a friend. One of the things about New Frontiers is we want to build relationally. It's not just pie in the sky. Those of you at North, I know not many could make it, but Jeremy wanted to spell out on the first night some of our distinctives. And as you know, New Frontiers is going through the biggest transition since it started. Now, it's not a negative thing. I know when change happens, we can all feel a bit insecure. And, ooh, what's it going to look like next? Well, New Frontiers has been called to that ever since the beginning. Because by our name, we don't know what it's going to become, what it's going to look like. But one of the distinctives of the North team, and can I just say, we recognise that the name North has only got a limited shelf life. Okay, we've just about stretched it by talking about North Wales. Uh, when we get down to Shrewsbury, that kind of gets a bit, you know. Now we're in Canada, we talk about Northern Canada <laughs> or North America. But it really is getting to the point. So please pray with us. We don't just want to change the name for change's sake. We want to be prophetically led by God into that. So please will you pray for us that God speaks to us with a name that fully expresses the commission and the vision that we have as an North team. It served recently, you know, until recently, but now it's not serving us. And we very much feel that God wants us to embrace more and more people, reach more and more people with the gospel, and calling it the North can actually work against us if we're not careful. And we want a name that works for us. So that's not just an administrative thing. I feel it's a really crucial apostolic and prophetic thing. So please pray for us. It's very important. And one of the things I want to do today is to try and invite you in so that North becomes you and not us. You'll see that North is not men in suits. (laughs) Uh, When I worked in local government and I was in management, I used to wear a suit every day for work. Couldn't wait to go to church to dress down. And not because I disregarded God, but I just wanted to be myself before God and not hide behind a tie. Now, I know for some people, wearing a suit and tie is part of their worship to God. Uh, That's fine. But you'll find in New Frontiers, it's not part of our worship code. We want to be ourselves, very much ourselves. And 
We don't want New Frontiers to become them to you. We want it to be us. And something very special is happening here at Gateway Church. You are now, in God's grace, becoming a resource-based church. So this is not a church just for itself. In fact, there is no church ever been started by God that just exists for itself. Never in the history of church. Now man turns it into that, but God never had that intention. He was always to be a light to the nations. He was always to reach out for the lost and the poor and those in need God. Always. Always existed for others. Always. And I know you carry that in your DNA because we're getting to know Nigel and Callie really well. It's great. They go to tea shops as often as Kay, (laughs) which is wonderful. They love Landudno like Kay does. Kay's family went every year to Landudno when she was a child and falling in love. So we went to Betsy Coward yesterday. I haven't been to Betsy Coward. We worked out for 30 years. But it looked like it was 30 years ago. (laughs) Uh, But just as nice. We really enjoyed ourselves. Had a nice meal there. And then we went on to Landudno. And all we do in Landudno, well, all we do is tend to walk around and then come home. But it's just something about visiting Landudno, which we uh, love. And the weather wasn't great, so we didn't go up the orm. But uh, in getting to know you, we know the DNA here. And first step for most of you is to really know that you're you. Uh, And it's really interesting. When you talk to people, they'll talk about them or we. And you know people who talk about we means that they're owning the church and they're part of the church. The people who use them they're still on the fringe. It's the same in New Frontiers. When I visit churches, if they start to talk about you or them, (laughs) we know not yet the relationship hasn't been established. And we want to really establish a sincere relationship with you where you feel that you are the North and that you're the North in Wrexham and that you're a resource base to take the gospel message out to the ends of the earth. And that's beginning to happen you've very kindly already released Nigel and Callie and I want to thank you on behalf of the North team for the way that you're releasing Nigel and can I just say we want to see Nigel and (coughs) Callie released Callie's got a significant amount to play in the region I think more and more you'll find more of you have got a significant amount to play in the region and to serve and to serve Wales and to see Wales where it was a hundred years ago Uh, That would be magnificent. So, please take that sincerely. Uh, I won't tell one of my jokes. I'm sure you get better jokes here. Nigel's got one of the driest sense of humours in New Frontiers, so I'm not even going to compete. So, (laughs) so he should. I'm very very disappointed they had no rude pictures. You've got to work harder on that. Will you turn with me to Matthew 12? Well, (laughs) I'm fairly thick-skinned. Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read you the first 28 verses. I've just titled this, A A Day in the Life of Jesus. I I had something prepared, 
Then we spent a day with Nigel and Kelly, an evening with your leadership team, and I rewrote it this morning. Uh, so it, it, it's not that, how can I say, they haven't set me up to say, will you say all the things we're scared to do? Okay, they haven't set us up like that. But I obviously want to serve you. And as I prayed this morning, I just felt God lay these things on my heart. So I just slightly amended it. And we'll pick it up from chapter 12. <coughs> At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some of the ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day, and yet they are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Spirit, help us to hear what Jesus says. Because what you'll find is there were people on this day that didn't hear and didn't see what Jesus was doing. With God's help, we can hear this. There is one here that is greater than the temple. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, quotation from Hosea, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went to their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, it wasn't the man with the shriveled hand that was looking to accuse Jesus. Okay, this is the Pharisees, who were really uptight by now. Okay, Jesus had really ticked them off with the answer he gave. And so this is just moved on from the field into the synagogue. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. Can I just say, this is a slight tangent, but just to say, when miracles happen like this, one, it's part of the kingdom, and we want to see it every day. This didn't stop at the end of the first century. Right? The kingdom is still here, still expanding. But there was something in the faith of the man who had a shriveled hand to stretch out, which was actually impossible. And he was asked to do the impossible. Now, Jesus did the impossible by making his arm grow. Mm. But can you imagine living with a shriveled hand and Jesus saying, stretch it out? The first reaction must have been, what a silly thing. I've got a shriveled hand. But there was something in him. He said, okay then. And the hand. Sorry, that's just by the by. I'll be dropping lots of tidbits in for you to follow up in your small groups. Uh, Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Sorry, we'll move on. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the place. Many followed him and he healed. Oh, sorry, I missed out. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They are really mad now. They're not just upset. They are mad. Uh, To get to the point where you want to kill somebody, it's gone beyond upset. 
Would you agree? <laughs> Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick. So he not only healed one, Jesus is not into token gestures. He didn't just think, I'll get up this morning and really get up the nose of the Pharisees. He was about bringing in the kingdom, doing the will of the Father. It wasn't about annoying the Pharisees, but inevitably it would. And I'll explain why in a second. So he wasn't just into tokenism, I've healed one person today, that's enough. No, the kingdom of God was coming in. And therefore, he met more sick. What happened? He healed them. And then he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the Son of God or the Son of David? The people saw something that said this could only be God. The Pharisees, when they heard this, said, it can only be Satan or somebody serving on behalf of Beelzebub. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, listen, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A simple day in the life of Jesus. Have you ever put yourselves in the disciples' shoes? I sometimes try and do. Can you imagine them following Jesus and getting up in the morning and think, what on earth is he going to do today? What on earth? Is... They, they, even when that wildest imagination, they couldn't guess at some of the things he would do. But they knew some of it would lead them into trouble. What on earth is he going to get up to? I bet they didn't anticipate this. To set the scene, it's the Sabbath. Now, hear what's in the heart of God. The Sabbath was designed by God to be a day of rest, a day to enjoy God, a day of restoration, a day of grace, a day to put off the busyness of life, focus on him and your relationship with him. That was God's heart behind the Sabbath. And yet the religious leaders over generations here represented by the Pharisees, had turned it into a day of rules. So they turned a day of grace into a day of rules. This is really important to understand. Day of grace that came out of the heart of God. The Pharisees turned it into a day of rules. 
I don't know if you've seen recently, there's loads of these fly-on-the-wall documentaries, aren't there, at the moment? And there was one on Jewish families in the UK. And I think it's been on Channel 4. And I was just channel-hopping and saw this. And there was an interview with a Jewish wife in a kitchen. And she was saying that on the Sabbath, they're not even allowed to boil water. Now, some of the clever ones have a kind of a permanent boiler that just keeps it boiling. But if you don't have that and you've got a kettle you can't actually switch the kettle on because that's considered work. So when she wants a cup of tea or coffee, she invites friends or neighbours around who are non-Jews because she can't get another Jew to do this. (coughs) But she can't ask directly because that's sin. So she has to somehow weave into the conversation that she's desperate for a cup of tea. And hope that the person in the kitchen cottons on and says, I'll make you one. And this is how she lives on the Sabbath. Now, can you believe? Do you think that's what God intended when he set up the Sabbath? Do you think that's what God intended? Now, there's certain things that you admire about the Jews, the way they were prepared to stick to that. But from the outside, you have to say... That can't be what God intended by the Sabbath. And I don't read anything in Scripture about not switching on kettles. But what (laughs) happens is, in order to ring-fence the law that God gave, they've added on all these extras to try and protect it. And what they've done, they've created this day of law. And the sad thing is, it's not just one day. It's a lifestyle. So a day of grace ends up not just being a day of rules, but a day of fear. Fear from breaking any of the law. Because some are so obscure, they can break them by accident. And break them by being normal. And a day of grace becomes a day of legalism. Now behind all this, is a clash of kingdoms. Let me just say that legalism and grace can't coexist. They're incompatible. Soil and water. They don't mix. And uh, Nigel was very amused when I said, I've got a thing for Judge Judy. Now, I just want to, those of you who watch daytime TV, I know it's very sad, uh, but occasionally I switch it on, and if I see Judge Judy on, I watch Judge Judy. Now, there's no sexual thing going on, please, I've not, you know. But, if you want to see the law at work, Judge Judy is the personification of the law. She, the toughest people come in, obviously prepared to defend themselves, and she reduces them to blubbering wrecks. (laughs) She embarrasses people to the nth degree. She will press to get the truth and make deliberately do things and say things to unnerve you to get at the truth. And then when you find out you're guilty, she piles it on by the ton. And you really have to ask the question, why do people volunteer to go on the programme in front of millions of people to be embarrassed 
as the way she embarrasses, but she epitomises the law. Always right, never lifts a finger to help, and crushes you. So Jesus arrives into this situation, and there's this massive clash of kingdoms. Now, we often make the mistake that the clash of kingdoms is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And right at the end of the passage I read out, you get that clash. The demonic, Jesus comes in, rescues the person, breaks the hold of the demonic, and releases the person from the hold of Satan. But the rest of the time, it's not the demonic or Satan where the clash of kingdoms is. It's the clash of kingdoms with legalism and religion. Jesus didn't just fight. When he brought in the kingdom, it wasn't just a fight against Satan. It was a fight against religiousness and legalism and everything that worldly that was not of the kingdom. And the fight that we fight, see here is as much about him hitting the religious legalism of the day and hitting that kingdom as it was about hitting Satan's kingdom. Now, he hits both on the same day. But please don't make the mistake that it's all about Satan. It's not. It's what we've built. Just as much a kingdom. And sadly, what masquerades as faith. I'll come on to this point later, but just to give you an appetizer, it even exists today in the name of the church. And there's as big a clash of kingdoms today as there was 2,000 years ago. Just want to run through the, the things that happened on the day as three examples. Example one, the disciples were hungry. They hadn't had the feast that we'd had last night, Belinda's. Okay, got up, still well fed. That was a wonderful feast. But the disciples obviously hadn't had that, and they got up, and they were hungry. So they picked the corn from the field. Now, in the Old Testament covenant, God had actually said one of his prerequisites for the Jewish nation was, farmers, don't harvest your whole field. Leave a portion for the poor to pick the corn so that they can be fed. It was actually built in to the grace of God. Under the old covenant, we're not talking about new covenant grace now, we're talking about old covenant grace. So that was built in, that was the heart of God. Harvest the field, but leave the perimeter so that the poor have something to eat. That was the real law of God. Under the extended law of man, that didn't apply on the Sabbath, because it was work. So poor people went hungry on the Sabbath. Because the definition of poor is you didn't have anything anyway. And on the Sabbath, you couldn't work to get anything, and even picking corn, so you just went hungry. Jesus the king of the new kingdom, 
demonstrates from Scripture how actually the whole point of the Sabbath and even the consecrated food was to serve the glory of God and be a blessing to the people. And therefore David could go into the temple and take the food to feed his men. And Jesus uses scripture to demonstrate the grace of God, even in the Old Covenant. And that's what really got up the nose of the Pharisees. Because not only had he broken their law, but he'd even used scripture to defend it. Which, of course, was their foundation. That was what they built their whole world system on. Scripture. And here was Jesus, right in front of them, saying, and now one is here it was the Lord of the Sabbath, the full expression of the Sabbath, the day of grace, the day to focus on God, the day to receive, the day of relationship, the day to rest, which you've turned into a day of fear and of legalism. This is a day of life, grace and relationship. Clash of kingdoms. Example two, Jesus, the very personification of God, the very personification of the kingdom of God, moves into the synagogue, the Pharisees' home base. That was in the field. Now Jesus, I'm coming right into there, where they feel safe and secure. This is home territory. This is where the Pharisees rule. This is their land. And Jesus walks in, sees a guy with a shriveled hand, and what does he do? doesn't say, it's the Sabbath, sorry. Really so, sorry. <laughs> Jesus knew what he was doing. And again, it wasn't just to make a point, it was to bring in the kingdom. And he reaches out. Well, the Pharisees tried to trip him up. They say, is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? What a question. That reveals a mindset in itself. It really does reveal a mindset. But every Jew that was ever trained from a small child would know that you can't do work and healing is included in work on the Sabbath. So they thought this was an absolute banker question. They thought this was the question to show that he was a complete heretic. Because every Jew knew that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus just took it and said, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? You'll even rescue a lamb or a sheep. I tell you that the, the Sabbath was made for good. Now there's the kingdom of God. The Sabbath is made for good. You can do good on the Sabbath. The legalists had robbed the Sabbath from being a good day to being a day that, to be honest, most average people feared in case they got it wrong and crossed the line and didn't observe the law to the nth degree. God had always intended the Sabbath to be a day of grace and a day of good. I just want to stop there and ask you a question. When you get up on a Sunday, now... Ask all the questions you want to your elders about New Covenant Sabbath. But I'm just being simple here. 
Okay, keeping it simple. Phil will ask, answer those questions well. When you get up on a Sunday, do you get up once you've woken up, okay, like Kay had at least three cups of tea, uh, <laughs> but once your brain is in order and, you know, you, you're focused, is one of your questions, God, what good do you want me to do today? What good do you want me to do today? I can guarantee that would have been in Jesus' prayer when he was talking to the Father. Because I can guarantee before this day happened, he would have prayed and he would have spent time with the Father. And I can assure you that one of his questions would be, what do you want me to do today? What good do you want me to do today? I just want to put that in your thinking. Can I encourage you to get up? And under the new covenant... Right? Can I say every day is a Sabbath? Now, Phil will explain that. <laughs> right? So you can get up every day and say, What good do you want me to do today? What good do you want me to do today? Not what laws do you want me to avoid to break, but what good do you want me to do? Do you see the negative and the positive? They are so far apart. So in the kingdom of God, goodness is for the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is every day. And so Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. He not only demonstrates the grace of God, or the goodness of God, he demonstrates the power of God. And it's interesting that Jesus calls it good. Now, in 21st century charismatic language, we may have said he demonstrates the power of God. In fact, I just have. Mm. Jesus describes it as the good of God. And over the years, in the UK, we've separated God's goodness from God's power. I don't think Jesus does that. I think inherent in God's goodness is God's power. And so when Jesus is talking about doing good... He expects that some of that will be miracles and supernatural power that is beyond us naturally. So, can I encourage you, today is a day to go around doing as much good as you can and to bring in as much of the kingdom as you can and to see as much power released by the Spirit as you can and to see people healed, transformed, the demon-possessed set free, Okay, you don't have to go hungry. You can even make yourself a cup of tea and the kingdom is advanced. Example three, the healing of the demon-possessed man. Can I just say a better translation is demonised and I haven't got time to go into that, but if you want an excellent understanding of that, if you read Dave Devnish's book, Demolishing Strongholds, it's very well explained in there. But he's written a book on it and I've got... Ten seconds. So I'm not going to launch into that. But I will refer to them as a demon, demonised person. Now, the Pharisees now are at absolutely boiling point. They've already decided, this guy's gone too far, we want to kill him. So they are furious. They're not just a little bit upset, they are furious. There's a rage. And that legalistic rage has now got to the point 
where they accuse the Son of God of working for Satan. Now, I'm making these points strenuously because that's what legalism ends up doing. There is so much legalism that is portrayed as Christianity and as church, and it doesn't recognise Christ when he's in front of you doing miracles. Legalism blinds you to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. It does not lead you to Jesus. It leads you away from Jesus. Don't let anybody, anybody fool you into saying that legalism is righteousness. It's not. The Son of God, the Saviour of the entire world, was in front of them dispensing grace and healing and their legalistic mindsets were so locked in that they turned around and said, God is Satan. Now, that gives you an insight into legalism. But if you're like me, it's shocking. I want to rescue people from legalism because they think they're doing the right thing. Even non-Christians don't accuse God of being Satan. Isn't it funny how it's only the religious that accuse Jesus of being Satan? doesn't say any of the bystanders accuse Jesus of being Satan. In fact, for the bystanders who weren't religious and legalistic, they said, could this be God? (laughs) They've got more insight about what's happening than the religious. That is the power of legalism to distort to blind, to pull away people. And they need grace, they do not need more law. Don't criticise legalists. They're masters of it. You need to understand they live, it's their bread and butter. Legalism has to be right, and all it does is tell you when you're wrong. So when you tell them that they're wrong, they'll say, yeah, I know, I'm still trying to perfect the law. Okay, or they'll come at you with their 10 best arguments of why they're right. They're masters of the law. Don't use the law to rescue legalists. In fact, it's impossible anyway. The law can't save. What legalists need is grace, just like everybody else. In fact, they're no different to everybody else. They just have a different mindset and they're in a different kingdom. They're not in the kingdom of God. They're in their own kingdom of law. And it's tragic. And they need rescuing as much as anybody. In between these examples, between healing of the shriveled arm and the demonised man, Matthew just slips in a quote from Isaiah. Because Matthew, as he looks back on these events and starts to write them down, he's aware that this is about a revelation of the kingdom of God and who Jesus is. Okay, It's not an issue between Pharisees and Jesus. It's an issue of the revelation of the kingdom and a revelation of just who Jesus is. So he slips in one of the Isaiah prophetic words about the forecoming servant of the Lord, 
or saviour, the ones that apply to the Messiah. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. You do not find the words love and delight in legalism. They don't coexist. And he, and I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or qu- cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. The care here for those who are bruised and broken. I will not snuff out a smouldering wick. For the people who are hanging on desperately and are virtually at the end of themselves... Jesus is there to pick them up until he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Not in legalism, in the name of Jesus. I want to just highlight very quickly some of the characteristics of the kingdom of God highlighted here by the Isaiah passage. And this is in complete contrast with the kingdom of religion and legalism. The kingdom of God is identified or characterised by servanthood. Can I just say, when you were saved, you were not saved to be a passenger. You were not saved to be a spectator. You were not saved for 21st century consumerism. You were saved to serve the living God and to build the church and to advance the kingdom. When We'll finish later on when Jesus talks about a house divided against itself. Right? One of the ways a house can be divided against itself is that there's, when we first joined a church in Bedford, we were taught the 80-20 principle. 20% of the people did 80% of the work. It was a kind of an advance from the one-man ministry. It was a creation of the clergy-laity divide. Okay? There was the one vicar, or the one paid leader of the church, and they did everything. But then there was the real keenies who gathered round, and they shared some of the work, but you still had the situation of 80% of the work being done by 20%. You created your own clergy-laity. That isn't... There's nowhere to be found in the kingdom of God. There is no clergy-laity divide in the kingdom of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus are all royal priests. We're all temples of the Holy Spirit. We're all children of the living God. There is no clergy-laity divide, and therefore, why do we see it in church? Because if we can't see the kingdom of God in church, flipping out, where else should we be seeing it? Now, I believe the kingdom of God is bigger than the church, but at least we should be seeing it in the church. So can I just say, Gateway Church, don't create a church that's got a clergy-laity divide. Please, move into the kingdom of God. You're all royal priests. You're all called. It doesn't say Jesus appointed himself. It said, whom I have chosen, chosen by God. We're now in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we have been chosen. Not self-appointed. Chosen to be servants. 
God has not chosen you to be a spectator. God has not chosen you to be a passenger. God's chosen you to be a servant. And guess what servants do? They serve. Can I invite you? Enjoy the kingdom of God. You don't do this because it's legalistically required. You do this because you and I are the one he loves and whom he delights in because we're in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God is not based on law. It's based on love and delight. It's based on receiving and experiencing the love of God and the delight of God to the point where your only reaction is to say, I want to give this back. Now, it's a mere reflection of what you receive, but that's what that kind of love does. It provokes you to give it back. Praise God. So, I'm leading ultimately to invite you to build a counterculture in Gateway Church, Wrexham. I was very struck by Dave Fallingham's prophetic word at Borderlands, where he put his finger on the legalism and disunity that exists across the UK churches, and particularly across Wales. Now, it's not that English churches or Scottish churches are immune. They're not. We've got the privilege of serving some of the Scottish churches, and it's just as rife up there. Where somehow in the church, disunity rather than unity. I mean, they must read the passages on unity and have the equivalent of spiritual dyslexia. Because when Jesus says, I pray that they may be united and one, they must read, I pray that they are disunited. Because they disunite with such eagerness and force that you think they must misread it. But what I do know is, Gateway Wrexham, is that this nation of Wales, that has seen the wonderful move and grace of God over the years, desperately needs a counterculture of the kingdom to be re-established. Where unity is natural, and disunity is pushed so far away, in fact... Every effort is made to push disunity out of the window. Where it's not the first thing that's reached for, it's not even contemplated. Where legalism is totally pushed out and the kingdom of God of grace, love and delight is established. Legalism produces policemen, not priests. Do you understand? You are called to be royal priests, not royal police men and women. Checking up on everybody, making sure they're obeying the law and picking them up if they fail and then looking in the mirror just in case you failed. You will not find in here, I appoint you to be royal policemen. But you will find in here, I appoint you to be children of God, royal priests, temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom. The kingdom comes in and does good. It doesn't say you can't. It doesn't say to the hungry, stay hungry. It feeds them. It doesn't say to the people with withered arms, stay withered. You'll enjoy God's grace even more 
by the fact that you know you're injured and you can carry that and always know that you're a soldier for God. Now the kingdom of God comes in and heals them. The kingdom of God doesn't look at a demonised person and say they must have sinned to get demonised. I'm backing off. The only way they could have got demonised? Sin. We don't do sin, we're off in that direction. Now the kingdom of God comes and rescues them from being demonised. The kingdom of God recognises the king when he's in your presence. And not only recognises him, but worships him and he's delighted. Legalism tells him, you're Satan, out. You're breaking all the rules, out. We want to kill you. Folks, if this room was a bunch of legalists, I'd already be hung up. But legalism has a way of creeping into us all. It has a way of polluting us, getting into our thinking. And we have to be, I would say, clinical (laughs) in being so washed, so enjoying, so bathed in the grace and delight of God that legalism has no way of getting in. And you'll notice that not only is Jesus the recipient of God's love and delight, He's the recipient of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is all about the Spirit of God resting and living in his people. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. That's why we can say to a person with a shriveled hand, be healed. Not because you've got any inherent power, but the Spirit of God carries all the authority and power of Jesus. And therefore, in the name of the kingdom, be healed. Demon, be gone. Poor and hungry, have food. So legalism is that. This is what Jesus produces. Servanthood and service. Knowing the love of God and the delight of God. The presence of the Spirit. Victory, goes on to say, till he leads justice to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. The kingdom of God is characterised by hope, not fear of failure. And it's characterised by the nations, whereas legalism will end up with a faithful remnant who are protecting the bastion of righteousness. And we have nothing to do with that evil generation or people out there because we're clean and they're unrighteous and we've got it right and they haven't. That, that's not church. Church goes round grabbing everybody who wants to know Christ and who knows that they need them. And you know what? It may not be the clever people, it may not be the rich people, it's the people who are ill who know they don't need a doctor, not the self-arrogant. So Gateway Church... I encourage you, God wants to build the kingdom here. He wants to set up such a counterculture that it's like this. I'm going to just say, you're going to get brick bats thrown at you. You are. Because as you walk around demonstrating this kind of kingdom, if you encounter legalism, it's going to react wherever you walk. Don't be scared of it. Don't abuse them. 
Don't fight them. Don't use law against them. Love them. Pray for them. Extend the grace of God to them. Show them the love of God and the delight of God. But you will get brickbats. And what's the, na- that's the nasty thing is that you get brickbats from the church. It was the church that was criticising Jesus, not the non... I know they weren't Christians then, but just using it in modern parlance. It wasn't the Christians that were acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. It was the non-Christians. So, law produces policemen, not children. The kingdom of God produces children. Can I just invite you as I finished? If there's any... You may well have tasted and lived in a legalistic environment. I apologise if you know nothing about what I'm saying. All I can say is that's God's grace on your life. And don't go there, please. But for those who have tasted this, and you're going to encounter people that have tasted and lived in this, and even protected it. Can I say, if you've been in that situation, you need to repent and get out of that kingdom and come into the kingdom of God. And you need to be praying for those people who are in that kingdom that they're rescued into the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you, build a, build a counterculture here of servanthood. I don't want to come here and find that there's a 15, 20% of the church killing themselves to do everything in the church and another 80% sitting back as if it's a cruise liner and it's their right. And, you know, I've been in churches where there's people who are taking it like a cruise liner and that actually the staff and the leaders are just there like waiters and waitresses to provide their every meal on this all-inclusive cruise liner. And then when it doesn't quite live up to their expectations, they criticise. What? You do nothing, but you're critical. No, no, no. Let's turn it around. It's the kingdom of God. We're all servants. We want a church where every member does its work. Where Ephesians 4 is fulfilled, where it says that the church builds itself up his love as every member does its work. Where every person sees their value in Christ. Now, that's not necessarily on a Sunday morning. That can be advancing the kingdom in your workplace, in your community, in your family. But you're pushing out the kingdom and you're carrying just as much as a load for Gateway Church as anybody else. It's full of grace. You're not ordered to do that. You're so overwhelmed by the love of God and you're so delighted with the delight of God in your life. It gives you an energy like a spring lamb. You can't wait to do good. Isn't it amazing that we can know the delight of God? Too many Christians are miserable. Too many Christians... I mean, this world gives you enough misery. It does. There's so much misery in this world. But, you know, God is a God who delights in his people. He is in a good mood to all those who are in Christ Jesus. He really is. But the number of churches I go to, and you wouldn't believe that. You look at people's faces and you think, flipping heck, God's got to be grumpy. God has got to be the grumpiest person in the entire universe, because look at the people. 
I, I want to bring you into the delight of God. Not because I'm special, because God just wants to give it away to his children. And that you're people of the Spirit. Temples of the Holy Spirit. Where an act of goodness can be just as much an act of the miraculous as it can be to give somebody a grain of corn so they can be fed. Yes. That's an act of goodness, but it's also an act of goodness to restore somebody's arm. Yes. Now there's the counterculture. Is that the kind of church you want to see here? Yes. It's great to see half of you convinced. <laughs> I really want to encourage the rest of you to join in. I really want to encourage you. Wales needs some churches that get this. It really does. Can I say, and the time is getting a bit desperate. What's the population in Wales, Nigel? Is it six million? Three million. million. Sorry, I doubled it. Three million. Three million people. They need your help. And it's only going to be done by a counterculture of grace and the kingdom of God, not by legalism. Legalism won't help anybody, just make them feel worse. Can I just pray for you? Is that okay? Spirit of God, we want to say we love you and we love the kingdom that Jesus ushered in. I just pray for anybody here that doesn't know the delight of the Father. Spirit, in your amazing grace, would you just release that on them right now? Whatever obstacles are in the way, whatever hurts are in the way, whatever experiences are in the way, I just pray that you'll release the delight of God in such measure that it overwhelms any of those, that it washes away all those things and their people are left with that wonderful taste of the delight of God. Lord, I pray for this church that the norm is to know your love. The norm is to know your spirit in them and on them. That the norm is to know your grace. That the norm is to know unity. And when it does get a bit fractious, the norm is to know forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you will release this church and release individuals from any shred of legalism whatsoever. I pray for such a clash of kingdoms that your kingdom wins in every respect. I pray for such a clash of kingdom that legalism is driven out, that the chains of legalism are broken, that the thinking of legalism is broken once and for all, that there are new mindsets that conform to the grace of God and not the, the law of man. I pray for release from religiousness. I pray that it's all about a relationship that, with you and not about doing rituals and duties. I pray for a counterculture to be grown here that is so radical it changes Wales, the UK and the nations. I pray for goodness to just ooze out of this church. I pray for faith to respond to when Jesus said, yes, it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. 
I pray for faith to arise. I pray for everybody here to know that they can pray for the sick and they can be healed. They can feed the hungry. They can see the demon eyes set free. Mighty God, bring in your kingdom. Let your kingdom come, just as you prayed and taught us how to pray. Let your kingdom come and let it be infectious. May thousands of people get infected about this all over Wrexham, all over North Wales, and then into Mid Wales and South Wales. Please, God, please, Lord, start like a plague of grace across this nation. Just receive the grace of God right now. Please, I invite you, any shred of legalism, now's the time. Don't come under condemnation. Just allow the Spirit to set you free. Just put it behind you and say, I don't want to go there anymore. And I don't want to be a spiritual policeman for every other Christian that's around me. I don't want to be constantly thinking, you shouldn't have done that, they failed again, you've done that wrong, that's incorrect. But just grace oozes all the time. Just allow the Spirit to minister to you now. Because we can only do this if we've tasted it. We can only do this if we've received it. Because it's not natural in men and women. It's a gift from God. You have to know the love of God so you can love. You have to know the delight of God so you can delight in others. You have to know the acceptance of God so you can accept other people. You need to know God always thinking the best of you so you can always think the best of other people. It's here as a gift. Please receive it. These are not just words. This is the kingdom of God.